The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, I think that there is something inherently difficult about this sort of environment, which is that there is no clear outcome that you can point to. There's not going to be a jury that proclaims that he is innocent or guilty. Uh, this is the impeachment effort failed. He was not convicted. But the, the purpose of this committee is something that's a, it's a fact-finding mission. It's an investigation. It is a different type of accountability. And, you know, many people have spoken to the notion that it will be a mechanism for creating a historical narrative uh, by compiling this information in a really methodical way. And, and that doesn't feel as satisfactory as yes or no, he was guilty by some very clear standard. But that is, as Quinta says, that's something that Congress is uniquely positioned to do. And it's a really important effort in my mind. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 14th, 2022. It's an emergency podcast recorded almost immediately after the January 6th committee conducted its second public hearing on Monday. It was recorded on Twitter Spaces before a live audience, and joining me in the Twitter Spaces virtual jungle studio was Quinta Jurassic, Natalie Orpet, and Rahini Kurup, all of Lawfare, we talked about what the committee accomplished in this second hearing, what evidence it put forth, whether Donald Trump actually knew that the election lies were false or whether he had convinced himself that they were true, and we took audience questions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 14th, the January 6th hearings, day two. Start us out, Quinta. What did we hear today and what did you make of it? The hearing today was a bit different than the first hearing uh, last Thursday. So if last Thursday was kind of the curtain raiser, you know, giving people a sense of the big arc of what the committee was doing. This hearing was much more in the weeds and intentionally so. And actually uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney even ended the hearing by saying, you know, look, that was really detailed. Don't worry, we're gonna zoom back out soon. And the detail that the committee was focused on had to do specifically with proving in the, the words of committee chairman, Benny Thompson, Donald Trump lost an election and he knew he lost an election. Essentially making the argument that not only was the Trump campaign, as we know, promoting lies about voter fraud in the run-up to January 6th, but that Trump himself surely knew that and was lying intentionally. And the way that the committee sketched that out by hearing testimony from a mixture of live witnesses 
and uh, taped deposition testimony, essentially hearing again and again and again from witnesses that Trump heard from various credible sources, including his own campaign team, his own legal team, lawyers in the White House and the Justice Department, that claims of election fraud were bunk. And instead, he chose to surround himself with uh, more unreliable figures like Rudy Giuliani, who were telling him to go ahead and claim that fraud had occurred and that he won. So I think that the, the committee was overall uh, quite effective, I thought, in, in sketching that story. I don't know how much new information there was in a broad sense. I, I think I'll be interested to hear what the other guests think. I think there were a lot of new specific details about you know particular interactions, which is part of what made the the story so powerful that you know that the committee was able to sketch this portrait of a man who was just told repeatedly that there was no fraud and just kept moving, and that was quite powerful. I don't know if it changed my overall perception of uh, what the campaign was doing in selling the big lie after the election and in the run up to the sixth. So I want to come back to the question of whether Trump knew and whether the committee was really effective in in transmitting that, because I think it's a really interesting question. But before we uh, dive down that particular rabbit hole, uh, Rahini, what were your thoughts? Did you learn anything new today, or was it really just adding depth to what we already knew? I think, I think it was mostly adding depth to what we knew. So just to build off of Quinta, I also thought the committee did an impressive job um, of narrowing in on a couple issues surrounding the big lie. So like as Quinta said, it was much more focused on than the first hearing, which gave us sort of an overview of everything. This was much more focused on the first part, as Liz Cheney described, the first part of the, the seven-part plan that the committee's divided up. And today, looking at the effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen. So we got much shorter opening statements today, a lot more time for the two panels, witnesses, and just a ton of evidence through what I thought was uh, an effective use of witness testimony and a lot of deposition videos to help the committee make its point. And so, yeah, I, I don't think much of it was entirely new, but I think today, like the first hearing, it was important to hear these things right from Bill Barr, Bill Stepien, or Alex Cannon, um, not just reported from newspapers, but right from their mouths, you know, people who are allies of the president who saw what was going on and can speak to that directly. You know, I think it makes for good TV, but it also is important for the record, wherever that record will lead us. Natalie, your, your initial impressions. I, th- I think I'm inclined to disagree with a huge amount of what's been said before, but I want to I, I wanna <laughs> hear your thoughts before I come in out of left field. Okay, then. So I agree with much of what Quinta and Rohini have said, so I suppose uh, you will disagree with me as well. I think one thing notable about today, um, sort of as Rohini said, it's, it is quite different to hear directly from a person's mouth, their statements and their views. It's also in my mind different to hear testimony that was taken under oath, very formalistic environment, as opposed to you know, even if what we're hearing is consistent with past facts that have been reported in the press, this is a different environment. To me, that's meaningful. I think the other thing that was quite clear from this hearing, somewhat as opposed to the first hearing, although, as Quinta said, sort of for different aims, was this felt a little bit more to me like this particular committee was showing its work in terms of its investigation. There were little things like you saw more of the questioning of the witnesses for the deposition to provide some context. You also saw them reference specific documents and emails that they had gathered to ask witnesses about directly. 
And I think they went through an incredibly methodical way the different claims and conspiracy theories that have become quite prominent in the public dialogue about potential evidence of fraud. And they, they went through very methodically talking to different types of people from White House lawyers to lawyers to uh, U.S. attorneys to campaign advisors to very carefully debunk each of them in turn to a, to a great depth. Um, so I'll stop there and hear why you disagree with us, Ben. So I my disagreement is that I think we learned a great deal that was new from this hearing. And I think the the implication that we started with was that we kind of already knew that Trump was peddling nonsense. And so we learned that he knew that it was nonsense. But I think the depth on this point actually really matters in a qualitative sense. So we have this image of Trump as surrounding himself with yes men who kind of genuflect at whatever crazy theory he has. And that is not what was happening here. His campaign staff is advising him, we lost, in a quite mature and data serious fashion. And, you know, Bill Stepien wasn't there today, although he was supposed to be. But he was basically functioning like a, a very traditional, competent campaign operative, looking at the numbers and saying they're not there. The lawyers are being like lawyers and advising the president that he doesn't have a case. He fires them and replaces them with crazy people. And then the attorney general and the deputy attorney general and the acting deputy attorney general are all saying to him repeatedly directly to his face, these points have no merit. Uh, We've looked in them and the U.S. attorney in Georgia. And so I think the scope and depth of the the degree to which he is actively informed, no, this is nonsense, actually really conditions my sense of, and I think was you know, quite different from what I had expected the reality to be. I expected kind of the reality to be, you know, he, he heard what he wanted to hear among a group of yes people, but that's really not what happened. What really happened is he gets a lot of truth from a lot of people and basically fires them all. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But so this brings me to my second question, which is that the premise of this, and I'm not sure who to direct it to. So Natalie, in the first instance, I'll direct it to you. The committee started with this idea that Trump knew this was false. But in listening to the testimony today, I really was haunted by the possibility that he's just delusional. And, you know, Barr kind of flirts with that idea at one point, that he's just kind of lost touch with reality. Do you think this evidence shows that he knew and was lying about the evidence? Or does it suggest to you that he was, which, by the way, is no different from a point of view of political accountability, but may be very different from the point of criminal accountability in terms of establishing a, a, crim, you know, a criminal state of mind, a mens rea. Do you have the impression that he knew and was actively lying about the results of the election? Or do you think the evidence shows that he was just incapable psychologically of absorbing the fact that he might lose and then did lose? I frankly don't think it matters. There is some component of this that is sort of thinking along the lines of legal standards in certain contexts. It was very clearly a he knew or should have known um, effort to uh, establish. And I think the committee did that in spades. And, And I think 
you know, the fact of the matter is whether he was delusional or not, and I, I don't, there's any way that any of us can put ourselves in his mind, the weight of the evidence, the degree of the evidence, the number of people and the range of people who were telling him the truth was just beyond a reasonable person standard. And I, I realize I am giving legal standards that are not really relevant in this context, but I think conceptually they are the same. And it's it's what leads me to say, I just don't think it matters whether whether they can prove or any of us can prove that he absolutely had specific knowledge versus should have had knowledge. So I totally agree with you in the political context, but a lot of people are trying to translate, to try to map the committee's evidence onto criminal process. And the criminal process, your subjective state of mind under all of these statutes matters a great deal. And I worry from a, in, in a criminal process that without him saying to somebody, I know this is all bullshit, but we're going to promulgate it anyway, he's going to be able to argue, uh, assuming it ever got course, that, you know, uh, he really believed it was fraud and and he had right smart people like Sidney Powell and the former mayor of New York uh, encouraging these beliefs and he earnestly believed it. That may be, but this is Congress. This isn't DOJ and Congress. This committee is not trying to present an argument to a jury. This is about something else. I think, you know, perhaps as many people are speculating in the press, um, this committee is trying to help DOJ make a case. You know, I think DOJ is clearly doing its own work and has its own investigatory tools. So it is not like DOJ is waiting for the committee to uh, present all of its evidence. And I think the committee has many more audiences than DOJ or the criminal process. I think it's it's also speaking to the American people, including any of those, I mean, certainly anyone who will listen to the hearings, but even more broadly, because what comes out of the hearings will get elsewhere besides just people who are watching it in the first instance. Um, and they're speaking to, you know, these specific conspiracy theories that have been promulgated and they are speaking to people who aren't sure. And, you know, it, it, from from a legal perspective, it feels a little bit superfluous in my mind to think of it as only aimed at DOJ because there are little things like, you know, the way that the staff was asking questions in these depositions are not the way that if you were conducting a deposition in civil litigation or if you had someone on the stand in a criminal case, some of the questions would not have flown just from a criminal procedure perspective. So I think that it's it's misguided to think of this purely as a means for helping DOJ create a case. Quinta, what do you think? Does did, did this leave you with the impression that Trump knew that he should have known or that he lives in his own reality in which all of these fraud allegations were actually real? He certainly should have known. I don't, I don't think that there's there's any lack of clarity about that. I mean, if you just go through every example that the committee pointed to, you know, if you picked a random person off the street and walked them through all of that evidence, I am pretty sure that every single person you talked to would agree. Indeed, the election was not solid. Again, I guess uh, assuming this is a, a person who, you know, doesn't, doesn't have uh, preconceptions or political affiliations or so on. But that's kind of always been the problem with Trump. I mean, and we, we saw this uh, in the, the Mueller report, as, as I, I'm sure you remember well, Ben, that, that, you know, a lot of the difficulties that the Mueller team runs into in 
concluding or in, in, in weighing whether or not Trump committed obstruction of justice involved the fact that it is just really hard to tell what this guy is thinking because he expresses himself strangely. He seems to kind of live in his own world and, and bend the rest world to fit what things look like inside his head. And I do think that, you know, being able to show how repeatedly, how carefully people just debunked every single thing they brought him, it makes a very powerful case. At the end of the day, I I don't know if you can know whether he knew to, to get really epistemologically complicated over it. And I do think that if this department wanted to bring a case in which proving his corrupt intent depended on proving that he knew that, in fact, he had lost the election and there was no fraud, that that could potentially run into problems. That doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to bring a case. But, you know, it's just one of the sort of quirks of Trump that you can have this mountain of evidence of all of the times that people told him he was wrong. And I'm just not sure it's enough. Yeah, I was really listening carefully for the moment where he acknowledges it, right? I I was hoping that there was somebody who was going to say, you know, step in or something. When I presented him with this data, he he said, yeah, well, it looks like we lost, but then went out and gave that speech anyway. And the interesting thing about it is there doesn't seem to be anybody, at least not yet, who says that he acknowledges it even privately, which makes me think we may be in, and certainly has convinced Bill Barr, that he's in the land of sort of delusional or magical thinking. Rahini and Quinta and Natalie, too, if you have thoughts on this, but Rahini first, what do you think the most significant, what's the closest we get to like a single incident where Trump, you know, is not merely informed, but seems to like, seems to engage the idea that he's peddling bullshit? Yeah, so I think I think the closest we get is where Bill Barr talks about. So Bill Barr describes that Trump is sort of he thinks that Trump may be detached from reality, but he says that Trump never that there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts are, right? Like Trump is all of these people are talking to him, but Trump does not care about what the facts are and sort of goes on to the next point, right? So someone gives him an answer to an allegation, he doesn't fight back about whatever the answer is, and he moves on to the next allegation of- I think that was Rosen who said that, actually. Okay. Yeah. I I guess that that's probably the closest we get, though I wonder if that helps or hurts a potential DOJ case. It's a certainly, I I mean, leaving aside the DOJ case, it's, it's consistent with both magical delusional thinking and lying, right? It's, it's, this one doesn't work, so I'll just go on to the next one. Natalie Quinto, what did you think were the sort of most I'll give you mine afterwards, but I'm curious what you guys think is the most most probative of lying as opposed to delusion. Yeah, the the instance that Rohini mentioned was the first thing that came to mind for me as well. I think the committee also did a good job um, repeating a couple of different times that the fact was presented to him on numerous occasions that even if there had been fraud, um, it would not have been determinative. And at a certain point, it's it's just math, unless you are really at a degree of conspiracy theory that you think, you know, there are only a couple of people and their names are Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell who are telling you the truth and everyone else is in a conspiracy to oust you. Um, and that brings me back to, you know, maybe we can't put ourselves in, in Trump's mind to know what he actually knew or he should have known, but 
it doesn't really matter because we're at a point where it's just so obvious that the the reality is what the reality is. Quinta? I think there are two moments. So one is a, a incident between Trump and, and Barr, where Barr uh, sort of finally reached the end of his rope, gave an interview to the AP saying he thought that claims of election fraud were meritless, and then uh, went and spoke to the president. He said that uh, he could tell that Trump was angrier than he'd ever seen him, although trying to control himself. And he kept repeating, uh, you know, why would you say this? You must hate Trump. You hate Trump, uh, which is a uh, quite an interesting way of referring to yourself in the third person. But I also think it is you, Quinta, know... you must hate Wittes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, this is the guy who went out in front of the public and, you know, lied about the Mueller report for, for Trump, although perhaps Trump doesn't think about it this way. You know, the idea that Bill Barr hates Trump, I think, is uh, so sort of facially absurd <laughs> that, that perhaps the, the immediate retreat to that is telling. Um, although, again, I don't know whether that's you know, maybe that just speaks to a man in the grip of a very strong delusion. I do think that one thing the committee was able to point to that I think is important is that it isn't that, you know, Trump is falling behind on election night as the mail-in ballots come in and then Dave starts to seize on claims of fraud as ballots are counted. He starts talking about fraud immediately. And this is something that I think Stepien and others emphasized that, you know, he's he's pulling out claims of fraud before it would even be possible to know whether there would be claims of fraud. And and importantly, also, there's a, an election night interaction where everyone on his campaign is basically telling him, like, we, we don't know, essentially, and we can't we can't know and we won't be able to take a look at any evidence until later. And Trump essentially ignores that advice in favor of listening to uh, advice from Rudy Giuliani, who, as a Trump aide Jason Miller described, was, and I quote, definitely intoxicated. Um, so the moment where you blow off the advice of your entire campaign team, uh, your daughter, your son-in-law, your legal advisors in favor of getting advice from someone who is probably drunk, again, maybe he's just in the grip of a very strong delusion, but it does seem to me like that that is as close as you could possibly get to uh, you know, a, a moment of intellectual honesty, perhaps. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, I would just go a step. So this was the example I was going to use, too, except that I was going to start it earlier. Before the election, he announced that the only way he could lose is through fraud. Um, So even before the election eve, he is already preparing the groundwork for this claim and blaming a set of 
you know, mail-in voting and sort of poising to uh, pounce on the sort of red mirage phenomenon. Um, and I think that's actually a certain amount of evidence. Again, I don't think it would be adequate for criminal purposes. But as I think about whether to attribute this to delusional thinking or or to malevolence, it does weigh on me that there's a sort of level of pre-planning here that's operationalized immediately before the votes are counted in the face of a perfectly reasonable explanation as to why uh, the the vote might swing toward the Democrats over time. And so I, I think that's the, to me, that's the the really most probative, but I don't I don't know that it's ultimately persuasive. And I, I, I do have this sense that he's only very dimly in touch with reality. Uh, okay, we are ready to go to audience questions. While we do uh, that, do any of you know what the next hearing is going to focus on? Sure, I can weigh in here. So uh, next hearing is scheduled for Wednesday. I believe we're expecting to hear testimony about Trump's efforts to bend the Justice Department to his will, getting rid of the acting attorney general and putting in place someone who is uh, more amenable to Trump's claims of election fraud. And I, I believe we're expecting to hear in-person testimony from some of the witnesses whose uh, videotaped testimony we saw from today. So former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue, as well as uh, Stephen Engel, who was running the Office of Legal Counsel at the time. I think it's also been reported that Pat Cipollone, who was a White House counsel, may also be testifying. Uh, so we will see. As a companion to the next hearing, um, everyone can check out episode two of our podcast, The Aftermath, which actually goes into this in great detail with some institutional information that may be helpful context for folks. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, episode two of The Aftermath is all about the early Justice Department investigation of January 6th, including the attempted decapitation of the Justice Department by Donald Trump the weekend before the insurrection took place. Andy Ruakonen, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ben. So uh, uh, this is for uh, all the all of the panel who's uh, who's interested in taking it. Uh, how would you rate the uh, general performance of the questioners at today's hearing? Well, so there was only one, really one questioner. I, I, I guess the chairman asked a, a couple of questions, but really that was, uh, uh, this was a Zoe Lofgren day. Uh, Rahini, what did, what did we think of, of Zoe Lofgren? Yeah, I, um, I thought her questions were useful. They were focused. Honestly, I think most of what we learned and what we got was not from the, the witnesses who were there themselves, but from the, the video depositions. And I certainly paid more attention to those or... I, I gained more information from those than I did from the, the witnesses who were there today. Other thoughts on on how Lofgren and Benny Thompson, for that matter, did? Quinta, Natalie? I really think that overall the city has been quite impressive at you know putting on a show, telling a story in a really careful and controlled way in a, a medium that is often known for being careful and controlled, namely that of the congressional hearing. I think it's also worth uh, giving a shout out to the committee staff who have been kind of on display in a way that's also not usual. The committee has, on, on both of the two hearings so far, kind of included a, a video that uh, includes 
a sort of narration from a staff investigator sort of walking you through the evidence that the committee has found. And so I thought it was interesting that, you know, the members aren't only asking questions themselves, they're also handing over the spotlight. Again, not something that members of Congress are usually known to do uh, to the staff members who have done so much of the work. All right. Tony Kava, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks for these things. And I've been impressed by the committee thus far. It's really been surprising. Also been amazed by the press's reaction. The Washington Post, for example, thinks they're doing a great job. So I wasn't expecting either of those things. Um, my question is, is given all that, is it kind of a mistake to focus? And I don't know if it's the Dems making this or the press or whoever, but is it a mistake to focus on Trump's state of mind and his the degree to which he knew he was breaking the law in framing this? If you get too wrapped up in the legalese, does that kind of, in a sense, grant Trump a pass? Kind of my question. Thank you. So I will just uh, say why I uh, focused on that, which is that the committee is focused on that. So the whole frame of today's hearing is that the president knew that he'd lost and did this stuff anyway, which is inherently a bit of a inquiry into his state of mind, um, or at least a, a claim about his state of mind, i.e. that he was lying. And so I was really just trying to interrogate a little bit the premise of the hearing. I actually agree with Natalie that for all but criminal purposes, it doesn't matter at all whether he was lying. For criminal purposes, it matters a lot. But this is not a criminal proceeding. This is a proceeding that's about political accountability. And I wouldn't focus on it much at all, except that the committee built a whole hearing around the question. And so it was really just a, in a, by way of evaluating the claim that the hearing was making. Uh, does anybody have further thoughts on that before I go on? Yeah, I can. Again, I can speak to this um, as well. And apologies if I'm, I'm hogging the mic a little bit. I think that the fact that we are also focused on this question of intent honestly speaks to the degree to which we have sort of collectively as a society perhaps allowed the Justice Department to be seen as the be all and end all of what accountability means for a, a case like this, that if, if Trump is prosecuted by the Justice Department, that will mean he's really held accountable. So there's, there's a great deal of truth to that, to be clear. But I also worry that to some extent, we're kind of outsourcing to DOJ uh, moral and political questions that actually don't fit nicely in legal boxes for exactly the reason that we're describing. Um, and I would submit that, you know, what the committee is doing here, apart from building a legal case, is building a case for moral and legal accountability, which is something that a congressional committee is actually, you know, uniquely well suited to do in a way that the Justice Department just isn't. So consider this a, a shout out to the first branch of government uh, and perhaps a, a plea that we uh, take it a little more seriously rather than seeing it as a kind of a, a cut rate Justice Department. I agree I, with that. And I'll just add, um, you know, I think that there is something inherently difficult about this sort of environment, which is that there is no clear outcome that you can point to. There's not going to be a jury that proclaims that he is innocent or guilty. Um, this is the impeachment effort failed. He was not convicted. But the, the purpose of this committee is something that's a, it's a fact-finding mission. It's an investigation. It is a different type of accountability. And you know, many people have spoken to the notion that it will be a mechanism for creating a historical narrative uh, by compiling this information in a really methodical way. And, and that doesn't feel as satisfactory as yes or no, he was guilty by some very clear standard. 
but that is, as Quinta says, that's something that Congress is uniquely positioned to do. And it's a really important effort in my mind. Okay, Itamar Levy Orr, the floor is yours. So I wanted to build on uh, what was just mentioned, which is, uh, so what is the range of and scope of possible outcomes we can expect, whether historical, political, legislative, or criminal? And uh, specifically, what does success look like a year from now? Uh, and I'm happy for anybody to answer. Quinta, why don't you take this one? In terms of legislative outcomes, I think uh, there may well be a very concrete answer to that because the committee has really framed its own work uh, as a way of thinking through, you know, a particular legislative project. And that's in response to the Supreme Court's ruling in the 2020 case, Trump v. Mazars, which is a complicated topic for a different time. But the fact is that they're very uh, explicitly saying, we are going to release our findings and we are going to couple them with a slate of recommendations for legislative and policy change. They've hinted, for example, that they might uh, suggest changes to the Electoral Count Act. And I know there are conversations about that happening now in the Senate. So you could potentially point to that as an example of success. I think beyond that, it gets a little murky. You know, I would certainly say creating a historical record is a success. Um, if the committee can remind Americans of what happened on the 6th and, you know, make them care more about democracy, that would be a success. I also think that, you know, just showing that a congressional committee can carry out a complicated investigation on its own and sort of stand up for itself in the wake of an attack on Congress would be a serious achievement as well. So even if, you know, we, we don't have an enormous road justice moment where everyone suddenly realizes how the six was, I think there are a lot of ways in which the committee can still uh, achieve some good. Lynn Dixon Barr, the floor is yours. Well, I have a question about all the um, fundraising that was done based on the big lie. Is it illegal to lie about how those funds are going to be used? I think they called it the official fraudulent election defense fund or something like that. Is that in itself uh, illegal use of uh, funds? It is a very interesting question, and I am not an expert on fraud, but what I will say is if you get somebody to give you money on fraudulent pretenses, that is generally a federal crime. Now, the nature of the, the pretenses, though, have to be pretty clear. Like, you have to tell somebody, I'm going to use all this money to save puppies, and you use it to buy gold in. Uh, here, I don't know that they're anywhere especially close to the line. They called something a legal defense fund uh, that was actually going into general revenues, but they were spending money on this litigation. And so I'm, I'm not sure it's dirty. Um, I'm sure the Justice Department will take a look at it, but it didn't, it, it screamed fraud adjacent to me. I'm not sure it screamed actual fraud. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I think that if they had represented themselves as a 501c3, which I imagine they did, I believe it would be tax fraud at the least. But I think there's, you know, if I were doing research into this, I would be looking into whether it constituted common law fraud. Mish Naz, a.k.a. Really? The really? floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. A quick question to whoever wants to. Ben, ben is fine. Trump himself has gone on after... Um, you know, on those multiple interviews at Fox or whoever else will listen to him. And he stated himself a few times that he lost the election. Is that something that they can use? I mean, I know 
he uses mafia speak really well. So I'm wondering if those admissions can be brought into it. Thanks. So the answer is public statements often can be used to discredit other claims. What exactly he said and what it shows that he knew, I'm not sure, and I haven't looked carefully at those statements. Do, do any of you have thoughts on that? I haven't listened to the specifics either, unfortunately. Me neither. Okay. Patty Soapman, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. I have a question in regards to, in these hearings, how much of this testimony could then be transferred to evidence in regards to maybe a case brought by the DOJ? Natalie, do you want to take that? Um, sure. So I think if I were a defense lawyer, I would have objections to um, the way in which these depositions were conducted from a due process perspective, because uh, we're not required to have the same parameters as you would if you were in a legal proceeding, particularly in a criminal case. But I would certainly, um, if I were a prosecutor, I would certainly be trying to um, introduce evidence in whatever aspect, whatever respect I could from these hearings. Yeah, I'll just add that statements to Congress uh, get introduced in criminal trials all the time. Recently, I sat in on the Michael Sussman trial and uh, uh, Jim Baker, our, our former colleague's testimony, was impeached with his statements to Congress. And so, you know, when you make a statement to Congress, it is covered by uh, Section 1001 of Title 18. That is, if you lie, you're subject to uh, prosecution. And so I would think that, you know, from a witness's point of view, if you've given one of these interviews, it is going to be very hard for you to contradict it if the Justice Department sticks you in front of a grand jury. It's not to say it's impossible, but, you know, it is a statement that if you lie, you can be prosecuted for it, though it's not technically perjury unless you're sworn. Jackie Combs, the great Jackie Combs, the floor <laughs> is yours. It's great, to, right. great to see you here. <laughs> what a... What a, an introduction. The reason I was I jumped on today is because I've, I'm obsessed by this question of whether Trump, uh, whether there can be a criminal case, as you've already discussed. And I don't think I watched it all today, but I don't think it, it's come up yet in either the first or second hearing. But for me, the as I've gone to the question you put to your colleagues about what is the one thing that suggests to you there might be criminal intent on Trump's part that he knew it was a con and and the one thing that has jumped out to me over time is this the report we saw months ago where there is evidence i think it's a notes that were made available from donahue at the department of justice in which trump replied to jeffrey rosen it was a december 27th conversation where rosen told trump december 27th 2020 Rosen told Trump that the Justice Department can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. And the president replied to Rosen that he understood that, but wanted the agency to, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the, our congressman. And these are according to Donahue's notes. And I just wondered, you know, just quickly whether you all thought that was a key piece of potential evidence. Thanks. Who has thoughts on, on the famous just leave the rest to me speech? I mean, that does certainly seem to speak to the question. I'd, I'd completely forgotten about that. So thank you for bringing it to, to our attention. I mean, it, it gets to something that I do think is 
you know, has been on my mind in thinking about Trump's state of mind and intent, which is to what extent does his state of mind in one moment carry over to the next moment, right? Is it, <laughs> is it like a goldfish where he goes a turn around the bowl and, and convinces himself once again that, you know, he really has won the election? Um, but I agree, that's a, a pretty striking exchange. And I think if you're making the case that he, he really did know what was going on, I would certainly point to that. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see whether, you know, how Donahue, who is a very serious guy, by the way, and who was, uh, you know, who, whose interview excerpts today were among the more cogent, I thought. Um, but Donahue is a very serious person, and I think he's going to be testifying live later this week. And it'll be really interesting to see how he tells that story and what the inflections are. Michael, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Simple question. How much is timing a factor in this? Assuming the um, the committee wraps up their work in the next two weeks and then maybe a criminal referral happens, maybe a criminal referral doesn't happen. And then we're heading into election season at Labor Day. So there's a very short window for the DOJ to act, if anything, which may even get shorter if Trump decides to indeed announce in the middle of July, as soon as July 4th, that he's running again. So to not look political, to look political, to avoid anything, how quickly has, does Merrick Garland have to ask on this information that's being dumped on him? Yeah, so I, I will take this one. Um, I think the answer to that question is that there's a category error in it. The Justice Department is not operating on congressional time. It's operating on its own time. And it would be very awkward if for the Justice Department if Donald Trump quickly announced his candidacy. But there is, I don't think, any chance in the world that the Justice Department investigation is going to be wrapped up before the midterm. And this investigation is going to go on for many, many months or years. And the big rate limiting factor, frankly, is how quickly they get pleas from the people who are already indicted. Nevada D, the floor is yours. I was watching CNN and they had mentioned, um, uh, or actually the, D the DOJ Garland was on there and he said that uh, he hasn't been watching all of the hearings, but know that his investigators are. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I kind of thought maybe they were would do some some uh, indictments based off of what comes out of this. What do you think? So again, I think it is very unlikely that the committee has substantial information that the Justice Department does not already have, or at least doesn't already know that it has access to. The Justice Department has dramatically more powerful evidence collection capacity than the than the committee. It also has enormously more personnel to deploy on the problem than the committee does. Uh, so that what's holding the Justice Department up is matters within its own purview uh, and the difficulty of conducting criminal investigations, not that the committee has gotten to a lot of stuff first. So I think the Justice Department is probably just monitoring it and noticing if there are gaps that the committee is filling in, in their own work and they will surely follow up, but they are not gonna have their criminal agenda set by the committee. So uh, we are going to wrap up. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, thanks to Quinta, Rohini, and Natalie. And we will be back after day three once again. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution 
our audio engineer this episode was Twitter, which uh, recorded this space for us. Hey, folks, you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so share us on all the socials. Leave a rating or review wherever you found us and talk about us, you know, at dinner parties to people who think they don't want to hear but actually are the next obsessive listeners of the podcast. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.